right, Jay. <laughs> we are trying something new today. Since we can't make it together in person to record, we're trying out a new recording software, I guess, here to see if we can record remotely. If we can, then that'll, I think that'll make it a little nicer because you can actually do this from the road in person. Yeah, I think this would be good, man, because like I enjoy calling in on the phone, but you know, we're driving in the truck like that last time we talked, I was driving, might lose service. Plus, I couldn't see your face. So it's a little tougher to, you know, interact properly when you can't see your beautiful shining face over there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, we did see each other yesterday, though, for a, for a quick bite to eat in Lewistown. I, yep. For everyone listening, I, I took a, a load of cattle over to the livestock auction in Lewistown and just met family for dinner and headed home, quick trip, but not enough time to record and a little too crazy with all the kids running around. Yeah, and we got a pretty good little storm. Did you end up having some roads get a little dicey on your way back or did you skip it? No, I think we were just, just ahead of it. Okay. Why not, though? That would have just topped the day off with the cherry, yeah. you know? <laughs> kind of days yeah oh man so to everybody that messaged you guys sorry there was no episode last week but it was actually kind of nice not to have one i don't know if you felt this way but it made me realize that we've become a very normal nice part of many of y'all's wednesdays (laughs) i got i got some messages sent in saying my drive to work was a little different today or What's going on? I kind of have gotten used to this. Where are you at? What's you know, what's shaking? And it made me feel good, you know, like, hey, people are digging, you know? Yeah, I feel bad about that because I, I had a couple people reach out to me too. And I, I have podcasts that I listen to that I get up on Tuesday morning and I expect it and want it to be there. <laughs> when it's not, a little thrown off, thrown off. A little bummed out. I don't think I'm upset, but I uh, definitely do miss it. So we apologize about that. But work to uh, yeah work to be a little more diligent. But we I feel like I feel like as busy as we are with our schedules, as crazy as they are, I think we've only missed two weeks since the end of August. Yeah, since our inception. <laughs> yeah, I came across a news story. I don't even know if news story is the right word. It was kind of an, an article of someone who passed away. Oh man, I don't know, eight or 10 years ago, a guy by the name of uh, Paul Carson, and you're never going to hear this guy. And I, I just had clicked on, it was probably some clickbait thing I, I clicked on, but when I, I read his story and I saw him, it brought something to mind that I wanted to, wanted to share just a, a story from our past that we both experienced. Paul Carson decided to treat his skin condition with colloidal silver. So he started ingesting colloidal silver every day for years on end. And it turned his, turned his skin like, like this total silvery blue color. In fact, a lot of people would jokingly call him Papa Smurf. Okay. So go look, look this guy up. His last name is spelled K-A-R-A-S-O-N. You'll see what the guy looks like. A number of years back, you and I are Weston and our other brother Coulter took a canoe trip yeah. on the Missouri River. The, I can't even think of what they call this, but you put in around Fort Benton and you can go 50 or 60 miles down the river pretty easily on canoe and then get out. And we, we took this trip. And last minute, we had our uncle and aunt had a kid staying with them for the summer by the name of Jimmy. 
He, oh, Jimmy. He, I'm not even sure how he ended up last minute being thrown into a canoe with us, but he, he ended up going on this trip with us. And we'll have to get our other brother Coulter on here at some point to talk about all of the adventures or misadventures that took place on this, you know, these multiple days we were on the, on the Missouri River. Fun to have Weston on there too, because we all have such different perspectives, I think, on what was going on. Yeah, we definitely need to do a, a river trip recap because I think my favorite misstep that we made on that trip was our original plan of whatever landing we had thought of was going to require us to do about, was it 30 to 40 miles, 30 miles a day in the canoe? And we're like, oh yeah, like, yeah, no, that's no problem. You can, on a good day hiking, I mean, you can walk 25 miles in a day, you know, pretty well. So if you're on a river floating. Hold on. Have you ever done hiking? Well, yeah. Day after day? We went on a trip, yeah, when I was, you know, with the scouts back in the day where we put all of our stuff on horses and we led the horses and we were doing about 20 miles a day back into the into the Bob Marshall. And I mean, it's a, it's a big old day, right? <laughs> huh. It was a 70 mile trip we made. And it was in, it was in two and a half days. Well, we did no, no, this is the truth. This, you can ask Keith Giles about this. We took five days. We did 20. In fact, Rooster led us in there the first day back to the Danaher Meadows. We made it back in there. But we were all, you know, teenage boys, 15, 16-year-olds with no packs. Everything was on a horse. Okay. Okay. If, it's, if it was pack-free, I might. pack-free, 100%. I might buy into this. Nothing on I mean, nothing. You're just walking out there. So whatever our mathematics were on this river trip, we thought we could do something similar to that in a canoe. And I think we had planned on going a lot of miles on the river. And after <laughs> after our first day, remember we had that benchmark where we're like, we got to get to, you know, such and such cliffs by the end of the first day. And at like midnight, we finally gave up <laughs> after we're canoeing in the dark on the Missouri River. When you have a headwind that if you don't paddle, you actually are, the wind is pushing you upstream. Yeah. Oh, I forgot about the wind. If, if you ever tried to, if you ever tried to can paddle upstream, it is slow going. <laughs> but uh, some of the nice wind that we have through central Montana here, we encountered winds where if we would have needed to go upstream, we wouldn't have had to paddle because the wind just pushed us. It would us. have blown us back upstream. Anyway, let's save that for another episode. But and I'm just going to tell this one what brought this to mind this last this recently. So by the last day of this this canoe trip that we'd been on, we'd kind of settled into who who was in what canoes together, teamed up, you know, paddling. We had a lot of miles to put in that last day, and so we we had three three different canoes that were spread out. We ended up through most of the day being spread out, I don't know, 50, 60 yards between the canoes. You know, and everyone just kind of paddling along. We weren't bunched up together too tight. And I think I was in the the lead canoe. Were you with Jimmy or was it Weston? Weston was with Jimmy. Yeah, I was with Colton. Okay. Yeah. So I don't know what order you guys were behind this, but anyway, I, I hadn't seen anyone or talked to anyone other than whoever I was in the canoe with for a, for a, I don't know, five, six hours, you know, just spread canoeing. And we got to the, where we were getting out and 
the canoes pull up and, and Jimmy jumps out of the canoe and I see him and his face is completely silver. <laughs> and why I say this is when I saw this guy, Paul Carras on this picture of him, it's exactly what Jimmy looked like <laughs> getting out of the canoe. And I, so I, I was like, Jimmy, what, what happened to your face? Yeah. And you guys start to see it and it's, and it's baffling that, you know, five hours ago, when our canoes were bunched up, he looked like a normal human. <laughs> and five hours of just canoeing on the Missouri River, he's somehow <laughs> turned it completely like silver. Yeah, yeah. Like Tin Man, Paul Carson, yes, like, silver. Yes, yes. Like from the from the tip of his forehead all the way down. Uh-huh. He's kind of laughing at first, but then when it's like, no, seriously, what? What did you do? <laughs> seriously, what's happened? He's starting to get worried, so he's trying to lean over the water and look at his reflection. He can kind of see it, and he's starting to freak out. Weston, his canoe mate, I don't remember who was in. I think Weston might have been in the front. Yeah. And when you're in front and you're just paddling, you never turn around and look at the person behind you. If you talk, you just talk. You don't turn all the way around, you know, to, to talk to the person behind you in the canoe. And so, <laughs> so sat there and no idea why he turned his, his face silver, but I finally figured it out. Hot day, you know, on the water, so you're sweating. So he would, you know, wipe his face, you know, wipe, wipe sweat off his face. But the canoe that they were in, fiberglass canoe with an aluminum rail right along the tops of the canoe. Uh-huh. And he was using a wooden oar. This is what made me kind of figure it out finally is I think I, see, I saw his hands and his hands were that color. And I remember dad's you know, old blue truck when he would haul, haul corn and soybeans back, his whole setup in his truck to haul that back was all wood. And that wood rubbing against that aluminum in the trailer, you get this kind of a, it's almost like an aluminum, really fine dust or yeah. something on that wood. Yeah. And if you, you touch that wood, you get that on your hand. And so what Jimmy had been doing is his oar had been rubbing against that aluminum. So he was just sliding his oar all day across that aluminum. And so he'd get a little bit of aluminum rub off on his, on his oar wooden oar. And then when he'd be sweaty and wipe his face, <laughs> he just, over the course of a day, <laughs> painted his face with that aluminum. Oh, I remember that, man. <laughs> and we, had no, yeah, yeah. we had no cameras. We had nothing. So it was just... Look over in the reflection of the water. Look what we're talking about. <laughs> yeah, I wish we had a camera on that because that was, it was, it was extremely funny, <laughs> but somewhat alarming too, because we're out in the middle of, yeah. middle of nowhere. Yeah. And we've got one of our mates with us, his, his, go look at this Paul Carson. Yeah, it's it's yeah. exactly, exactly what Let's he looked like. Out. Last week, part of the reason we couldn't get together is you were, NASCAR and again. Yeah, I went out on my, this would be my third run. And it was, uh, the race was in, uh, let's see, the race was in Austin, Texas, at the uh, Circuit of the Americas is the name of the racetrack. So we flew out to Charlotte, jumped in the truck, rolled with Chris. Me and Chris went uh, nonstop to, to Austin. I think we got there Thursday night. Then we have uh, on Friday, you have what's called Tech Day. So we get, we get the trucks there Thursday night. We unload all the toolboxes all the cars, get everything kind of set up. And then Friday morning, the crew flies in and we want to have everything out and ready for the crew. So when they get there, you know, the mechanics, the end, the car engineer, the, you know, everybody that's involved with putting on the race for the number eight, everything's ready for them. Right. And so we did that Friday. You go through this 
it's kind of crazy. And I bet a lot of people don't know this about NASCAR, but they go through what's called tech day. And uh, it's where your car gets everybody that's racing, like 30 some cars line up in a line. And it was funny because near our trailer, they had a set of ramps set up. Basically think of it like something you would push a car up onto and then it sits on a platform so that you can get underneath it real easy. And then there's ramps that go off the front of that. And so I see this and I'm like, oh, what's this? What's this? They're like, well, it's, it's for tech day. You know, it's for, the, for doing all the technical inspections of a race car because NASCAR says car can only be so long. It can only be so wide. There's a gazillion things they check for. And so I'm like, oh, I see. So it's like a little stand, basically, the car parks on and they'll check it all out. So I'm all like, yeah, I'll help push it up on the ramp. So we get it up on the ramp and then we push it off and I'm ready to like, okay, let's push it back to the truck and, you know, continue on with our day. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. That's just the first checkpoint. You go from there to another, to another, to another. I think there's seven different stations that you go through and they measure different things. And we're talking tolerances that have to be within like a, what was it, like a quarter of a degree as far as certain angles and widths and, and different measurements. Things like something we, had to, something we had to adjust is in the back window of the car, they have support rods, right? So there's a big windshield in the back, and then they have strips of metal that come down and support that glass. And in the old days of NASCAR, they used to rivet the window to those supports so that the window wouldn't, you know, move. Well, they don't do that anymore. The window just fits tight, and then those supports are just there to keep it from pressing in. But because it was so hot out in Austin, which was like in the mid 80s, everything starts to expand and grow. So your car actually grows <laughs> as you're parked there. But we had a little gap between the support on the back of our car and the windshield. And just that little gap was beyond the spec. It was one that a lot of cars were experiencing, it looked like. So we were allowed to basically just use a mallet and hit that support so it would push up against the window again. If that makes sense, but you can't just you can't just like stuff toilet paper or something. <laughs> Rich is totally a truck so because I get by just so it doesn't yeah, rattle. Exactly. Like how many, how many times in a semi do you just take old napkins from Subway or McDonald's and yeah <laughs> stuff? And can't do that in NASCAR Apparently though. Not. So the the other thing about the tech inspections that are so kind of put you on edge, as I learned, is that if you fail at any of the stations you have to go fix the problem and then you go back to the front of the line and start the whole process over. So it's not like, all right, everything looks good. Fix this one issue and come back and we'll check it. It's if you flunk out of the station, go back to your shop, fix the problem and go back to the back of the line behind the 35th car and <laughs> roll through even the, even the checkpoints you already cleared, you have to go through them again. And with the changing weather, the, the hot and the cold, your car is constantly changing. So you could, in theory, go back to a station that you previously passed and get flunked again at it because something's not quite right. And then the grand finale. Well, they, they probably do that then to, to, I mean, I guess theoretically you could purposely fail 
something way down the line. So you have to go back and fix it, but then you make a bunch of illegal adjustments while you're in the shop. So that's probably why they have to go you back to through flush. and start over again. So you're not sneaking yeah, something in. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good observation for sure. So the very last, like this is like the Death Star. Remember on Star Wars when the Death Star gets the tractor beam on the Millennium Falcon and starts sucking it into the Death Star? And they're like, oh boy. That's kind of the final checkpoint at these, at these tech stations. It's this black tent and you pull the car into the tent and then they close all the curtains and there's apparently inside there it's some kind of disco party laser beam thing that sends all these laser beams all over the place and measures like, I don't know how many things, but measures all kinds of stuff. And then wow. it shuts off and they open the curtains and you get a basically a printout that says your car passed or your car failed. And a lot of cars that day were having trouble with the disco party in the tent because, you know, some like a wheel or something would just be a little off pitch that they didn't like. And you have to go back and, and do it again. And ultimately, if you get to where you just can't pass and you keep failing, you get penalized on the track to where, you know. You can always make the adjustments and get it fixed, but if you fail so many times, I believe you get pushed to the back and you'll end up starting the race at the back of the pack. So that was kind of an interesting thing that I'd never been a part of, had no idea that, I mean. So I have a couple questions on that. Do these cars ever run through this process or are they pushed by hand? No, you gotta, you gotta push them by hand. They're 3,000, they're about 32 to 3,400 pounds and you gotta push them everywhere they go. They never. They're never under power at any point ever, except for practice, qualifying, and the race. Even after the race is over, they shut the car off, and you got to push it all the way back around to the truck. Why would they do that after the race? Why don't Why don't they run? My, my guess is probably more just for safety things, so that you don't have you know cars running off. And and they're real. You know, like racehorses. Think of it like at the racetracks before they, like before the Kentucky Derby. Those racehorses are like super jumpy and raring to go, right? And like they got a guy leading the horse into the, you know, into the whatever that's called that they put all the horses in before they take off. Or like a like a bucking bull in the chute. You know, those bucking bulls or bucking horses are always real jumpy. I think that a, a race car is kind of like that when they're, they don't really just go slow. You can't really just like, oh, just ease it around. It's like, you let the clutch out in first gear and you're like, wow, <laughs> you're taking off. So. That makes sense. Like that documentary Cars. I don't know if you ever saw that. It's about that. It's where that car goes to. He goes to like that little town on old Route 66 and tears up. Like it's like he seemed like he had just was always. So that makes sense that those cars would be really jumpy because that, <laughs> that documentary that's, Cars that's right. <laughs> kind of on, I think, kind of showed that. <laughs> yes. Those cars. In the trailer you haul them in, they go on an upper deck in that trailer? Yeah. Yeah. That's another uh, okay. interesting thing. And there's two cars up there? Yeah, two cars. You have your primary car that's your main race car, and you have a backup car that you would use if something happened to your primary car in the course of preparing for the race. Do both of those cars then go through that, that tech inspection? No, just the, uh, just the first one. I actually can't definitively tell you the backup car protocol i'll have to find out about that 
I would assume there has to be some kind of inspection done to it, but it's not the roll through all the, I don't think it's roll through all the checkpoint. I got you. But you do, if you get, if you do have to use your backup car, you're automatically kicked to the back, which is maybe that's part of not getting the full disco show in the tent thing. <laughs> do you, so any work that needs to be done on these cars to, to get to what tolerances have to be or whatnot, are those just mobile shops that are in the trailer as well? Yeah. Yeah. We carry just the full array of all of all and any of the tooling you'll ever need for anything to make any possible adjustment to the car. So everything for that car, including the car for race day is on that trailer you're pulling. Yeah. There's, it's So it's all there. The one thing we don't carry with us, we carry tires to roll the cars in and out. But the actual tires for the race, Goodyear sponsors the, the NASCAR racing and they bring a couple semi loads of tires or race tires. So Goodyear gives you all your tires for the race. And uh, after the race, they take the used up tires back with them. So we don't carry like sets of tires with us because Goodyear gives everyone the same tires across the board. So that would be the one thing that we don't. Yeah. Was this, this was your first week stepping into some of these other duties then? Yeah. Prepping, prepping for race day. There was a lot of things. I, these other couple races and these experiences, Phoenix was my first race. So Coda was my second race third trip but second race and at coda i i learned a lot of things you have to help me try to remember to talk on these but one was yes expanded duties two is that there's a lot of strategy involved with racing that i didn't realize and three is that you kind of got to have your head on a swivel during and after the races because of some tensions that arise during the course of the race <laughs> so is this like is this like team on team potential violence yeah yeah this is beware because you can have a lot of wrong done to you which we did that race in austin we got ripped pretty hard a couple times and we also it wasn't really on purpose but we did we did bump another guy too and caused a little problem for another guy and they were not happy about it so <laughs> mid-race Taylor's like, hey, just, just, you know, Taylor's crew chief, right? And he's like, just be aware, you know, be, be watching what's going on around you because things can get a little wild sometimes, you know, people might get upset. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay. And I, I hadn't really thought of it before because prior to this, I'm just like, man, we're at the race. And, and I was part of the, the pit crew for that race. They needed a, we've been short a man to to catch the fuel cans from the pit crew fueler and so i was full-on decked out in the fire suit i mean i look like you know number one guy <laughs> so and and the pit crew's kind of you know by the pit wall i'm kind of behind the deal and i i look like a very easy first target for anyone that's coming in hot to to settle a score <laughs> to physically settle a score so i'm like okay like okay like kind of what's the deal <laughs> he's like we can't punch in nascar <laughs> don't throw any punches if you get punched then do what you got to do to protect yourself but he's like we, we we can't throw any punches or we'll get you know that that'll lead to problems and penalties and last thing i want to do is the lowly <laughs> co-driver come out of nowhere show up for the race drive the truck guy is to cause some kind of problem for the <laughs> for the team imagine they 
they like lose 50 points because the bearded co-driver <laughs> throwing punches or knocked a tooth out of some prized race car driver or something crazy. <laughs> so you were, was he, you were kind of practicing fetal position then. <laughs> yeah. So if it, if it comes down, it's don't throw a punch, just yeah. get in a fetal position and just, just down and cover. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah. I wonder if you ought to, I wonder if you ought to consider introduction of the, the smaller, the smaller size cattle prods. Ah, maybe so. I don't know who was I. I was talking about with someone this week how how discouraging electricity is. Yeah, from anything, but like if someone wants to throw hands, even just a hot shot, which I mean is not going to incapacitate you, but it doesn't feel good. Right. Anyone that's we're talking about a cattle prod, so it just shoots a little a little jolt of electricity to get the cows move or the pigs moving. But when you when the human has it done on them. It's. I mean, it's very uncomfortable, but I. There's something about electricity that really backs. I. You know what you know, I might. It's not the, the level of a taser, but enough to back someone off. I wonder if I could rig up some kind of suit that I could just push a button and it would kind of energize my whole suit, so that if anybody touches me, period. See, here's the problem. Okay, here's the problem. So let me back up and talk about becoming part of the pit crew, and then I'll I'll end this by telling you why there's a problem. So yes, they're short. They're short a guy on the pit crew. On the pit crew, you got guys that change tires. You got the jack man. Jack guys are huge. They're big guys because they in one big push, they have a hydraulic jack. You know, most hydraulic jacks, you pump them, pump them, pump them, pump them and the car like barely moves up, right? These guys in one big old motion or two motions got to get the car from, you know, on the ground to completely up on its side. So that you can change two, you know, two wheels and tires at once. They got to do that in two motions. So they're big old guys. And they all come, not all of them, I can't say they all come, but a lot of pit crew guys come from, they were college athletes in whatever capacity, whatever sport. Like a, like a jack man is like linebacker, college linebacker size guys. And they're not like, oh yeah, I used to be athletic. You know, I'm a big guy. They're like... That's what they do. They they practice, and then they they lift weights, and they practice, and they lift weights. Like it's a full time thing they do. And so pit crew guys, the smaller guys, are very athletic because they got to be super quick, right? Getting these tires on and off, and running the air guns. And then the jack man's huge, and then the fuel man, the guys that do the fuel. Yet that's a hundred pound can that. They basically hold up with, you know, their hand here and then they've got it against their shoulder and they got to push that into the car to fuel it. So they're big guys too, because they got to move this hundred pound can very quickly. On our crew, Chris, who was on the podcast, he's a big guy too. He's, he's, he's about 300 pounds and six foot three, you know, big, big fella. And then they need a guy to catch the empty can. So when the, when the giant fuel man fuels the car, he pulls it away when the can's empty, comes running towards the pit wall, and doesn't want to take the time to give you this can. He throws the can at you, and they need someone to catch it. So that's where I, that's where I got my duty. And then Chris, you know, the other driver, truck driver with me, he gives the second can, the second full 100-pound can to the fueler. So that's what all these pit crews are. There's these giant dudes. 
I'm not a giant dude. Pretty wiry. And I think I think we all got that when you were the one doing the the four pound empty cans. Catching the empty, duty. right? <laughs> right. I have somebody's got to do it. So, <laughs> so I'm realizing if and then all the race car drivers are just little guys. They're all just you know kind of like jockeys on a on a horse. Jockeys in the cars. These drivers. They're all most of all the ones I've seen anyway <laughs> that I've been around are little fellas. So I'm realizing that if there's any kind of brawls, it's not going to be one of these little race car drivers coming in hot because you could probably just push your hand out and kind of hold them at an arm's length while they're doing this at you, you know? But the pit guys, that's where the problem is at. And I'm like, what am I going to do? Like, some big jack dude, the jack man for one of these other teams comes running down and ready to take us out. I don't know. So that's the electrical suit or the fetal position. Might be, might be an option for me. <laughs> might be an option for me. Uh-huh. So after the race was over, we did get some kind of some dirty eyes at us. We were over putting stuff away behind our truck, and another another crew walked by, and they were eyeing us big time. <laughs> and I didn't notice it because I'm like oblivious. I'm all like, I, I, this is all new to me. And all of a sudden, Chris is just like clued in and just staring him down. And he's like, "What? What is it? What do you got?" And I'm like. What? What are you talking about? What? And he's like, dude, you got to pay more attention. And I'm like, to what? He's like, them guys could have been over here to throw down and you weren't even ready. And he's, I mean, he's serious. We're like laughing about it, but he's serious. I'm like, oh, okay. And then if you go and you watch some of the NASCAR clips of the, some of the fights and stuff, it happens behind the semis. Like after the race, you know, if you watch the background of a lot of these little altercations, it's either right in pit lane or it's after the race where, you know, a couple drivers come and they start throwing down. And of course, all their support crew for each group is around them, like their entourage. And that's, I mean, that's where we're at. So if I just, anyway, I wasn't aware of it, but now I'm, I'm clued in. I'm still hopelessly unprepared, but you know, I, I probably take a hit or two for the team, I guess. Is there a, is there a team that's known as kind of the, don't mess with these guys or is everyone pretty evened up or is there a, rep, a reputation? Team? You know, I, I don't, I couldn't say that's a good question. I bet Taylor knows. I'll have to ask Taylor about that because it'd be nice to know. So I had a little heads up. I think we have, we have some, there's some potential stuff brewing. We've got some, I would say some potential storms on the horizon and it's probably going to come to pass long before. See, I'm not getting back in the truck until the end of May. So I've got several weeks off, but there's a storm brewing and I feel like it's going to come to a head and I'm not going to be there to take it in firsthand because we've had, we've had one race car, another team that we've had like three or four serious run-ins with on the track. And they've all been like very discourteous, like young punk kind of things where you're like, dude, have a little respect. We got spun out by this guy at Phoenix. We got spun out by him in Austin. And then at the race yesterday, which we ended up finishing third place yesterday, which is great. But anyway, this guy came to pass us and did not, did not do any kind of passing maneuvers. Just rammed it right into the old rear end hard enough to actually kind of lift our car off the ground a little bit during the race. And then he went on to, to win. So kind of interesting, some stuff going on there that we'll just, you know, 
I don't. It's kind of like you, you got a, a like a horsefly trying to bite you. There's only so long you can kind of swat it away until something something happens. So that'd be another thing to watch for, I guess, and see as the, as the season progresses and the point system gets tighter. I think the the emotions and stuff run a little higher and, and things get a little more a little more fiery. So yeah, this is a lot more than just driving in a circle. All the drama, all the... here's And here's one other, this is another interesting thing for you. Because most of you out there that are listening, very few of you are probably regular. I follow the racing each week. I know what's going on. Race fans. But I had an interesting, I had an interesting comment. I don't remember if it was to an Instagram or a YouTube or what, but I've, and I've heard this before. This wasn't, this comment just reminded me of this thing that I hear from people. So I'm going to throw this out there. And it's that... The comments are in the vein of NASCAR is too boring. It's, you know, watching cars just go around in a circle. It's too boring. You want to watch something exciting and fun? You know, I like to watch F1 or, you know, a few other types of racing that aren't just cars going around in a circle. And it was funny because I got that. That comment came in a week that we were on a road course, which is, you know, an F1 course that is not a circle track or a big oval. It's a very, lots of curves, lots of corners, elevation changes. But anyway, the thing about F1 is, F1 is very exciting. Well, hold on a second before you say that. So NASCAR has courses that are not just in a circle. And everybody thinks they just run around in a circle. That's that's kind of what you were thinking too, yeah? So they have a lot of, they have, they call them short tracks, which are less than a mile around. Uh, like like today in Richmond, it was a short track. Wah, wah, wah. They have super speedways, which are like a couple miles around, big old giant tracks. Then they have these road courses, like in Austin, Texas, where it's, if you look at a satellite picture of the road course, it looks like a little kid drawing squiggles around everywhere. There's one there. There's one up in Watkins Glen, New York. Portland is a road course. Sonoma, California is a road course. There's several of them. There's one up in, I think, Road America and Wisconsin's another road course. Wisconsin. Working on my accent for Wisconsin. But anyway, so there is a lot of that. But then they go on and say that F1 is what's really exciting. And I'm like, F1 in that documentary is exciting because they, they take about two minutes to recap a race, right? And then all the rest is the drama between and beyond the race. The F1 races, I could tell you who's going to win an F1 race every weekend. I could tell you who's going to win the race, who's going to get third and fourth place, and who's probably going to get fifth and sixth place. You know, the, the last couple of years, Red Bull's going to win everything. The years, the 10 years prior to that, Mercedes is going to win everything. Before that, it was Ferrari's going to win everything. Like, you can, there's no action. Like, nothing goes on. It's like, okay, well, whoever, whatever position you qualify, that's pretty much how the race ends up but drive to survive makes it seem all like man it's crazy but the actual full races you know like in nascar it's a different it's a different winner almost every week it's not like oh yeah that guy wins every every race every week year after year it's you never know how things are gonna shake out if you actually take the time to follow it and understand it a little bit but so anyway i wanted to get that out because that's i think that's something that people know well, the the cool thing is, yeah, yeah, I admit I got drawn into that drive to survive and really enjoyed it. For anyone who wants to know, that's Netflix had a has a Formula One series 
you know, has episodes and it's just kind of behind the scenes with all the race teams and Formula One. But yeah, you're right. It is a little bit of the drama and all the behind the scenes stuff. So in a way, this podcast is sort of becoming the NASCAR <laughs> drive to survive situation because we're hearing all the behind the scenes. Trying to give you all the hooks, man. Get people hooked. <laughs> I tell you, you know who's hooked on it now is old Rooster. Rooster is. He's just he pure NASCAR. In, man. Big time. Big time. I know. Who'd have thunk? Who'd have thunk? Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, what else happened? So that was, yeah, I was in, I was in Coda. I had as a follow-up for you. I'm fine. I'm going to blame this first and foremost on you because what's the deal of the whole knock on wood thing? Like you say something happens or might happen. And then if you don't knock on wood, it comes to fruition. You sharing your last airline story. I think was something that kind of cursed me for my next experience on an airplane. And so I'll share that with you. We drove back from Austin. So the race gets over on a Saturday evening. We pack everything up and by nine o'clock, 10 o'clock at night, trucks are rolling back to Charlotte. So we get back to Charlotte on Sunday, Sunday afternoon. And my flight doesn't leave Charlotte to fly back to Montana until Monday afternoon. So I find myself with about 24 hours of time to burn before I can fly home. We had everything planned out. I was going to go get a tour of Taylor's farm, as he calls it. I call it the ranch. I was going to go check out the farm, see the grazing operation. But uh, he, he got home from the race to find out that his well, had uh, his pump in his well had burned up. And all of his cattle were out of water while he was at the race. <laughs> <laughs> you can, you can probably kind of laugh at that one. <laughs> so he messages me. He's like, "Man, I'm I'm just up to here. I finally got a hold of a company to come out that can get a well, and I got my cattle down on the creek. And anyway, it's crazy. So end up just being out there for a few minutes. By the time we get back into his place, it's super late. So we have a quick bite to eat, go to bed, and then Monday is the day that I'm going to fly out and. We go to the shop early in the morning and kind of nothing for me to do at this point because I'm just there. The race cars are all unloaded. The mechanics are tearing them all down. They completely tear the cars down to nothing so they can start fresh building another car for the next race. And so I'm just hanging out. Really tired because this team trucking thing is pretty tough because you don't get any sleep. While Chris is driving, you get zero sleep. Not because crisp but because the roads are just really bad and you just bounce back there in the sleeper so i'm pretty tired and as i'm waiting there i realize like you know what i might as well take a snooze so i go crawl in the truck that's just parked in the shop and i'm taking a nap right wake up from my nap grab a bite to eat and it's time to go to the airport so they it's like who's gonna take jackson to the airport and i feel like i'm in the way you know i'm like this huge third wheel especially on a monday at least at the race i kind of know what i'm supposed to be helping out with but on a monday at the shop i am like what do i do so the draw straws and one of the merchandise guys ends up giving me a ride to the airport so we get to the airport and i'm about an hour and 40 minutes before my flight and the airport is a good 45 minutes to an hour away from the shop okay so it's not it's not real close. And I jump out and I'm grabbing my bags and I tap my pockets. You know how you pat down your pockets to make sure you got everything? 
I have no wallet. No wallet in my pocket. <laughs> and, you know, like, does anything make you more insane than losing your wallet? Like, I don't think there's anything for me personally that makes me lose my mind worse than losing my wallet. And then to add to the thing that I'm at the airport, the only actual, the only piece that I actually need to get home is my wallet. I have everything else except my wallet. So I start scrambling around. I'm calling Taylor, like, did I leave it at your house? What did I do? And I'm thinking, and I'm thinking. And of course, this guy is not impressed, the merchandise guy. He was, he, he was really nice about it, but he's just like, what an idiot, you know? He's got to be thinking, what an idiot. Like, you came to the airport without your wallet, man. And so I, I realized when I took the nap in the truck, I was laying on my wallet and it was uncomfortable. So I pulled it out and stuck it on the dashboard. And then when I, when I woke up from my nap, I had got a phone call or something. <laughs> so I called Taylor. I'm like, can you go look in the truck? And so he runs out of his office. So now I'm feeling dumb because Monday's a big day. They have race meetings and all this stuff. And I'm like, hey, can you go see if my wallet's in the truck? He goes, he's like, yeah, it's here on the dashboard. My flight leaves at four. And it's now like, I, I don't know. I've got like an hour and a half. And I'm like, ah. This is never going to work. So we start shooting back to the shop, end up having to call another guy from the shop to get my wallet and bring it halfway to us. And even then I'm like, there's no way I'm going to make my flight even doing this. So now I'm burdening two guys from the shop, all for this co-driver guy that flies in from Montana, is in the way, blah, 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 blah. And so I get my wallet and I get back to the airport and... There's cars everywhere now at the airport. And if you've ever been to the Charlotte airport, it's a zoo to start with. So, so somehow, miraculously, I get my stuff. I get from the curb through security to the far end of the A-wing of the airport in 12 minutes. There was two people in the line in security at the security checkpoint. And I get there like as they're boarding my plane. So then, then we get up in the air. And the flight's full, big full flight. I'm sitting there. It's a three and a half hour flight across to Denver. And I'm sitting there. And I noticed when I was getting on the airplane that there were these, there were these two gals next to me in line that were chatting and talking a lot about fitness, like all these fitness routines. And, you know, they're wearing the, the fitness workout, full-time workout clothes that you see everybody wearing full-time nowadays instead of just at the gym or whatever. So. They're wearing all this stuff, and it just so turns out that they're sitting. The one is directly behind me, and then the other one is behind and across the aisle from me. So just one row back and across. And this gal, like two and a half hours into the flight, all of a sudden I hear her friend that's sitting behind me start to get a little frantic, just kind of a commotion. And a lot of people have their headphones in watching movies. And I turn my head and look. And this gal across from me is like, she's like gone. Like, I don't know. She's completely unresponsive, just like ghastly white and just like completely just flopping around in her seat, kind of convulsing a little and just not, not there. Like her friend's like holding her head up and is like slapping her on the cheek. Like, Hey, Hey, Hey. And her friend's eyes are just like, they're not responding like nothing. And so you're like, 
I've been trying to be a little better about fight or flight situations where you're like, instead of acting like nothing's going on, you're like, okay, like wave the flight attendants in and start helping do something. So they end up having to page like, if there any medical professionals, please come to the back of the, the plane. So there ends up being a couple nurses and a firefighter and they come back and I don't know what was wrong with the gal, but she just slowly came back to life and started functioning. So then they're trying to determine, like, do we need to make an emergency landing? Which, of course, and at this point, it seems really silly to even worry because it's somebody's life on the line. But you're like, we make an emergency landing. There's no way I'm getting home. Like, I'm going to be in Omaha, Nebraska for another day and then whatever. But they end up getting her going and decide that she's okay to get to Denver. I don't know what happened to her, man, but it was, she's kind of, for just my, my snap judgment was that she maybe was a little too, I, like there's people that work out and then some that maybe get a little addicted to it and that you can tell it's like you've gone a little beyond like a good healthy fit to like you should probably ease up just a little bit on the regimen and i noticed when she was sleeping she had her head just down i I think she like blocked her airway off or something and just totally passed out and like went into i don't know some kind of mode but anyway we made it to denver and i made it on up to billings and we made it home but i was it was so embarrassing to leave my wallet I, i can't even express how just dumb i was sending messages nonstop to everyone like sorry everyone tell if you see dale jr tell him i'm sorry for leaving my wallet i mean everyone like just feels so dumb it's one of those you've had those moments you know where you just like i've just ruined like three people's day or put a big bump in their day no i I, (laughs) i've heard about it and now i've heard about it again i don't think i've experienced it but i've heard about it (laughs) heard about it yeah Uh, speaking of people passing out i have had in my whole dental career, three people pass out in the dental chair only th- or in the dental office three times in my life. And two of them have been like really? the past couple weeks. <laughs> yeah. So it's the, I'm trying to think the first one was a, a teenage girl numbed her up. No problems. Everything totally normal. Number her up, sit her up, talking to her. All of a sudden her eyes roll back in her head and she starts like, did you ever do that that real fun thing when you're a teenager, or you maybe even before, maybe preteen teenager, yeah, where you, you make pass, each other pass you out? Pass me out. Before. Hyperventilate. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, sometimes when you pass out, we always call it doing the gopher, or like sometimes if you know that kind of that twitching thing. So this girl's like twitching away in the chair, like she's having a seizure, which you know that always kind of surprises you and so you know so get oxygen on her and you know lay her back and you know just comes to and call her her dad back and her dad's like ah her mom and her always do this kind <laughs> like of she's stuff doing it on purpose like <laughs> like, she, <laughs> like he goes yeah any little any little thing they get all they get all anxiety and they pass that anything they get a little anxiety from they just pass out like her mom and her always do this so yeah so, so just get the work done. And I was like, well, I said, I think you need to go, you better go check, get checked out. Cause just the way she was seizing, it made me think it was a seizure, but it wasn't, it was, she had just passed out. But a couple of weeks ago I had a, 
a younger guy in and he needed multiple teeth out. Got the teeth out, kept him in the chair, bleeding's all stopped and everything. And he's seems to be good to go. He's he works at a feedlot, you know, so he's out working with cattle, getting you know, and whenever you work at a feedlot, auction cattle, you, you get dinged up a little bit, you know, so he's someone who's not unfamiliar with with like he should be tough. That's a little You're bit saying, physical. Yeah. And so, yeah, he's good. Get up to get him, get him out and up to the front. And his wife's up there waiting for him and they're just getting checked out. And then he goes, Oh man, I'm getting kind of lightheaded. And so I, I come up. And so the one thing that we had learned in dental school that when you have these, you know, someone pass out due to, you know, to a little bit of dental anxiety, needles, or, you know, they don't respond well to the side of blood. When you're laying down, the oral surgeon told us it's impossible to, to pass out. I don't know if that's true or not. I've never tested it, but you know, they say just have people, you know, laid back, laying down and, and you're okay. So I'm like, all right, let's go, let's go back to the chair. We'll, we'll get laid back till you kind of feel better. And so I, I grab a hold of his arm and I'm, you know, ki- almost halfway carrying him back. <laughs> we get about halfway back. Totally goes on. He you. just, <laughs> just, uh, so I just, I just gently laid him down on the ground there. And the way he went down, it seemed like he was partially kind of getting my head and just lost his knees. You know, it was, it was he kind of, you know, lost his weight weird. And, but I, I mean, I had his weight and I was able to just lay him down with, you know, nothing happened. And he's laying down and he just opens his eyes like, he's like, what, what happened? I'm like, well, he just got a little bit sleepy. So he decided <laughs> to lay down in the middle of the floor. Yeah. So anyway, yeah, he just, yeah, sometimes people get teeth out and they're just fine in the chair talking, bleeding stop, they're good to go. And then they get up and walk a little bit and then they just get real woozy. And then the other one, this kid was in snowboarder, like a pretty aggressive snowboarder. You know, he'll, his dad is a physician's assistant, I believe in the area. And I know this kid has you know, trying to do flips on his snowboard is had some banged his head good a few times and he can handle all that but anyway i get him in and gave him a, a a numbing injection and he sat up we're just sitting there talking and he's like oh man i'm feeling woozy <laughs> and he just he just leans his head over <laughs> and starts gophering <laughs> right in the chair. so i laid him back and he came to and you know he was all right they went and called his dad he's like <laughs> his dad's like oh yeah he goes, you need little needles, cuts, anything like that. He's going to sleep on you. <laughs> oh, oh, he said no. He said, he goes, yeah, he goes, just recently I was, I was, I was working on ingrown toenail on him and he, uh, <laughs> he hit the floor when I was working on his ingrown toenail. Oh. Oh. You know, it reminded me of that time we were doing that fencing job in Wyoming and that no, little, you got no, that little tiny scratch no, on your no. arm from that barbed wire. You guys. <laughs> so Jackson... You know, when you fence barbed wire, it's you get not, scratches, you know, and Jackson got a little no, scratch on his not, forearm with that barbed wire. And next thing we know, he's Jackson is okay. laid out in, so the, guys, in the dirt. We're in Wyoming doing this custom fence job, trying to make them just earn a little extra scratch. And it's like 100 degrees out, working all hot, all days, late in the afternoon. And I end up ripping my arm, not scratching my arm. We'll call it an actual rip. Ripping my arm to where when I look down into the cut, I can see the different tissues, the different layers all looking back at me, kind of saying, hey, buddy. And it made me so mad because this stuff doesn't happen to me. 
I don't know if it was this combination of the heat and being dehydrated a little or what, but I looked down at it and I'm like, well, that's dumb, you know, and we get, we get cuts and go, I mean, should have probably been stitched, but whatever. And all of a sudden I just start, and once it starts coming, there's like, what do you, you can't really fight it. I'm just like, oh man, I'm like feeling really, I can tell I'm feeling really lightheaded. Like I'm going to pass out out here. So I just kind of lean against the pickup and just kind of melt down onto the ground. Do you remember that? Just kind of like, and I'm just sitting there on the ground, leaning up against the pickup. And of all the people in the entire earth to witness this, it had to be Luke. And so now forever, for the rest of my entire lifetime, it's remember that time you got that little scratch in Wyoming? <laughs> so whatever we fence now, Jackson's got to wear like the full, uh, the full welding aprons. And cause, cause if he, we can't afford to have him get a scratch and hit the oh, you know hit the so dirt mad. on us or I'm something. So frustrated with my, I I don't know I don't know I'm so mad at myself though. <laughs> I don't do this. I don't Complete care. In failure front of anybody of the body. else, I don't even care. Even Rooster, like doesn't matter. But Luke's here. Please don't. Please don't pass out. And I didn't pass out. I hung in there. But oh man, I was ghosty white. <laughs> uh, and then the guy we're pensing for is like. Whoa, do we need to take you inside? And I'm like, no, no, leave me alone. I'm fine. Oh, hate that. <laughs> I'm fine as you try and stand up and you're you're like laying on your side and you think you're walking. Your legs are just kind of walking in the dirt and you're laying on your side. You're just fine because you can't even get up. Yeah, that was me. <laughs> oh, that was a that was a good time. Oh man. <laughs> Yeah, we'll have to we'll have to talk about that whole thing. Yes, and you know, Weston and I went someday. back down there later and did like a part two. So we we can do a we can do a three way podcast on that one and talk talk about the full the full experience. Ugh, yeah. We've been talking a little bit about your miles per gallon over the last couple episodes. And we had a, I had a, someone comment in on the YouTube channel. There's a, a channel there, a guy runs it. I don't know his name, but it's Survive to Thrive. He, he comments some, so yeah. I mean, anyone go check out his go check out his channel. But he he commented on his mile per gallon experience, and I'm, I just wrote this down, so I'm reading this. He has a well, he bought a 2005 Peterbilt 379 mm-hmm. extended ES HD. Okay, <laughs> yeah, I thought it was something to do with just like HD recording. Okay, extended hood speed 500 cat Acert. Got it. Okay. Yep. He, big beast of a truck. Okay. And then uh, he ended up getting a 2020 Peterbilt mm. 579, which is, is their their aerodyne. Yeah, they're really, they're really, they look, truck, they're really nice looking too, though. Yeah, but they're aerodyne, yeah. Okay. So he said between those two trucks, his fuel savings pays – the monthly payment and the insurance payment on wow. both of those trucks. He has, he has the, the 2005, the big Pete, the one with the poor mile per gallon. He's, he's working to sell that, but it's just sitting there. But his Even fuel though he's not using the second for both of those trucks. <laughs> I believe it. He said that minimum, his minimum fuel savings yeah, per month is $4,000 a month. Especially that, that jump that he made from a 379 with a cat. Depend, I don't know what, what he hauls, but. Those are the cattle trucks that get four, four point two miles per gallon average, and that five seventy nine is definitely going to do two miles per gallon better. So 
yeah, I, I, especially in the price of fuel, that's amazing. I'm glad to hear that somebody else is experiencing that, that savings. Yeah. Yeah, he said that's his experience on there. So, so from that, the last episode, let's just let's touch a little bit more on and carry on with this miles per gallon. He, you talked about, you kind of got into one of the first things you got to do is become unemotional and not attached to fancy trucks. And well, I guess fancy trucks isn't the right word, but maybe the real cool looking classic. You can just say classic trucks. Classic trucks. You got to get outside and be comfortable driving something that that might bring a little bit of ridicule. So beyond, okay. So non-emotional, what, what, what's the next, what's the next little bit of wisdom you're going to, you're going to drop on here for miles per gallon in your trucks? All right. The next, I think for me, the next, the next thing that I would really impress upon someone trying to make their way on this quest would be that you need to next let go of the need for speed. There's a time and a place for speed. There's a time and a place to drive 62 miles an hour. I'll give you an example. I got a load of cattle on my truck and I'm on my way to Nebraska. And the first four or five hours, everything seems great. Cattle are riding good. I'm doing 65 miles an hour, 67 miles an hour. We're doing good. I stop and I check my cattle and I notice that I've got four or five animals on the trailer that are starting to develop issues meaning they're wanting to lay down because they're not feeling well. Maybe they're a little uncomfortable with the motion. They're a little seasick or they're, they're just weak. Whatever their issue may be, they're wanting to lay down. So I get those cattle up. I go another 100 miles and I check them again. And the same group of cattle are starting to lay down. I then realize I'm in a spot that I could be liable for some, some cargo claims here because these cattle are beginning to struggle on my truck. At this point now, I want to get them off of my truck as soon as possible. I'm going to go from driving 65 to driving 75, 78 miles an hour. I'm going to put the hammer down. I'm going. Okay, I want to get out there as quick as I can. You get out there, you get the cattle off. They get on solid footing. They get on some feed and water. Everything's great. They're fine. Okay, that is the time and the place to hammer down. In other freight worlds, it might be that it's Friday, and if I don't get to the receiving place, the, the warehouse, by 1.30 p.m., they're not going to unload me. And if I don't get unloaded, I'm going to be stuck in this parking lot until Monday. I'm going to be driving 75 miles an hour because I got to get there. Otherwise, it's going to cost me huge time issues. See what I'm illustrating? Now, once I get those cattle off, let's say I... I look around, I make a few calls, and I realize there's nothing on the books for me at this, at this moment. So now that I've unloaded, I got a night of sleep, I've washed my trailer out, I'm headed back to Montana. There's no reason for me to drive faster than 62 miles an hour. Yes, it's going to take me longer to get home. Yes, absolutely. But by driving 62 miles an hour in a, in a moment where I have no reason to be home you know, three or four hours sooner, that's where I'm going to gain, you know, a couple miles per gallon over driving 75. A lot of guys are like, man, I'm empty. It's time to fly. Let's hammer. They drive 75 or 80 all the way home. Well, they, they lose that two miles per gallon that they could have gained and it costs them a couple hundred dollars by the time they get home. So that I, I would say is the next, 
the next thing. You start to get into driving habits, and that's one of the the first and most important driving habits is to learn to manage your speed. It's not just all out constantly everywhere I go. I got to be driving 75. There's a lot of times that I'm not in high gear in my semi. If I'm in a hurry, I'm in high gear. If I'm not in a hurry, I click it back a gear and I drive slow. That's where I got when I was coming home from Minnesota. I mentioned that on the last episode. I got nine miles to the gallon empty. I was driving 61, 62 miles an hour, which, yeah, I'm getting passed by everybody again, which makes you feel silly. And it, that's the emotions again will start to play there. But it got me up to nine miles per gallon. So that's, that's where I would say to go next. Do you think there is, with, with these semis, a general sweet spot miles per gallon-wise? I mean, I'm sorry, miles per hour? Yeah. yeah. What I find to be the, the kind of the mix, because I mean, like the ultimate fuel mileage spot is like 59, 60 miles an hour. That's, that's going to give you the most optimal, you know, depending on your gears and stuff. But that wind resistance-wise, that's as fast as you can go before the wind really starts to negatively affect the contact it's making with the front of your semi. So for me, usually, you know, if I'm loaded and I'm just kind of needing to be moving, that 60, 64 is kind of where I usually hang 64 to 66. That's kind of, you're getting real good mileage, but you're still moving down the road. You know, you're not, you don't feel like you're crawling everywhere. All right. Well, we're, uh, we're getting up against time here. So I uh, seen if there's anything else I wanted to, to touch on. Hey, another one. I was, I was, I was just seeing some comments on a, a different, a different channel or something I was watching, and they were talking about uh, runaway truck ramps. Have you ever had to go in one of those? No. Have you ever seen someone go in one? I have never witnessed one. I've watched a few videos. I've seen some tracks in them before, but I've never witnessed it live or experienced it. All right. Runaway truck ramp. It's they're always a result of poor planning and when i say that i've poorly planned hills myself it's not like it's not like a mistake nobody ever makes everybody makes this mistake at some time whether it's late at night and you're tired or whatever but that always comes from starting too fast down at the top of the hill because you always have this moment where you can decide okay i've got a six percent grade for the next five miles should I start the hill in low range at 20 miles an hour with my Jake brakes on? If you're loaded heavy, yeah. But it's really slow. I mean, it's a long, slow descent. And, you know, folks can lose patience and stuff and go, oh, I, I got to be able to go faster than this. Well, they start going. And then once you start going too fast, you just can't get that load slowed down and your brakes heat up too fast. And once your brakes heat up, you lose your brakes. They quit working. So when they say a truck lost his brakes, it doesn't mean like there's a malfunction. It means that he didn't plan properly at the top of the hill. And now his brakes are too hot and they don't work anymore. You push on the pedal and the brakes contact the drum, but everything's so hot. It just doesn't do anything. And at that moment you go, Oh man. And I've been there. I've had those moments. I've, I've smoked my brakes before. In California, I smoked them once in Utah, just not being as sharp as I should have been going, oh, I mean, it all turned out fine, but there's a moment where I was really frustrated with myself for not planning a little better. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, yeah, maybe that's something we'll, we'll talk here's about. Rule, here's a rule of thumb. I'll throw this out there. This is an old timer. This is an old school trucker thing. 
whatever hill, whatever gear you climbed the hill in. So say you climbed it in, you know, seventh gear, you want to go down one gear for the trip down the hill. You want to go down in a lower gear yet. You climbed it. Always drop down one gear, hit your Jake brakes, and you'll never even have to use your foot brake if you do that. Kind of a cool, that, that is a legitimate old school trucker little nugget that some of you may or may not have heard. How's that on the miles per gallon though? That's the question. Oof. I don't know. Don't you when, want- when it comes to going down a hill and trying to live, <laughs> I'll eat it. I don't you'll know. Take you'll, you'll take what? You'll take a hit on the MPG. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's it. That's good. That's good. I like I like this better than a call in. I like this a lot better. Hopefully the recording and stuff works out right because this I think this being able to to shoot in like this and being able to see each other and then have a little more interaction. I, I like this a lot for these for these road moments. Well, the final thing we need to do, I guess, is not tell everyone to go to YouTube and subscribe and all those fun things, but to wish you a happy birthday. <laughs> hey! <laughs> it is Jackson's birthday today, everybody. It is. April 2nd. <laughs> yeah, as much of a joke as he is, he wasn't born on April's Fools. <laughs> That's a good one. That's a good one. So, uh, happy birthday, brother. Thanks, man. All right. Talk to you later. <laughs> See you.